for episode 29 of Insecurity. This week, we give a general overview of Unix. You can go to our website at in-security.org to find things like show notes, how to subscribe to the podcast, and leave comments. You can follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. And please send us an email to feedback at in-security.org. My name is Matt. And my name is Max. How are you doing this week, buddy? Oh, man. Super duper fantastic. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I'm good. You're looking a little uh, haggard from all of this vacation you're having. Yeah. Yeah. For Mia's birthday, we had taken her to this indoor trampoline place. It was okay. really cool. And they have trampolines like all over the floor and then up the walls. And they've got like foam pits. And uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. You can bounce all over the place. So we went there with uh, her and a couple of her buddies and just went during general public time. It's not like it was reserved for a party or anything like that. But they have um, they have like competitive televised dodgeball. Like closed circuit? No, no. From like, competitive within the place? So I, I don't know where else does it, but apparently they do like dodgeball and it's uh, a local public broadcast type coverage here. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I had no idea that they did that. I had no idea that anyone did that. No, I just figured it was like that movie dodgeball. You, you know? can dodge a wrench. And, and it's televised by like ESPN eight. The Ocho. Oh, there you go. I guess that makes sense. As soon as they decided poker was a sport, then just open <laughs> the door to everything. Although dodgeball, I still feel is more of a sport. Right. Especially, man, I'll tell you what, jumping on trampolines, not as easy as it looks. Right. So we rented like the place for an hour and there was five kids there and two grownups, me and another guy. Uh, we were doing the jumping and the trampoline in as well. And I'll tell you, like after they have these little pads of trampolines, you got to jump from like pad to pad type thing mm -hmm. or you can jump from pad to pad. Uh, and get some momentum so that you can go and jump against the wall and like body check yourself and bounce right off of it. Or, you know, if you if you're skilled, like the little teenager girls that I saw, they're doing backflips off the wall. So it's pretty cool. Little ninja training school. Nice. But yeah, it was just after seriously two minutes of doing this and jumping all over the place, I'd actually start sucking wind. Hmm. And there's the foam pit where you can try stuff into. So you just bounce down this uh, long, narrow trampoline and then do like a bunch of flips into it. So I got uh, got my daughter to record me doing that. Nice. Most excellent. Mm -hmm. It was fun times. Do you have any video of her playing or was it just she sh she shot video of you? No, I took video of her as well. But then hey, I'm like, hey, here. watch daddy's trick. Watch. The, <laughs> look, look what I can do. I know, I know it's your birthday, but yeah, watch me. Watch me. No, I'm just talking about my personal experience because it's something that I know. Right? right. They had fun. They got tuckered out as well, though. Um, one of the kids, poor kid, had spiked a fever the day before. So he was trying really hard to be able to make it through. But uh, it just caught back up to him and his head was throbbing. So uh, that's he was a little bummed. He tried to soldier on, though. I mean, that's at least he gave the effort. Right. Fair enough. But uh, yeah, so. After having done that and trying to uh, get in shape with some running, this morning I woke up and my foot, my left foot's all inflated. So I'm pretty uncomfortable with that. 
Oh, is that your yep. acting up? Yep. Yep. I've inherited through my wonderful father's side of the family gout. And so I uh, smashed it with the jumping and running and, you know, hyperflexed it and all that stuff. And then just decided to fill up with crystals that hurt. So is it an impact thing? Or are you just going to have to move on to like spin class? <laughs> well, actually, I was thinking about it last night because it was feeling a little sore that today I'd ride my bike around instead of running. But uh, it, it is definitely something that can be brought on by impact to joints, typically toes, uh, sometimes knees. So I think I was just unfortunate in that uh, it latched on to my left foot in the middle of the ball of the foot. Right. It's actually quite painful. But anyways... I'm currently sitting at around zero cardio, cardio ability. How's your, how's your fit bidding going? Oh, great. I put it back on. I took it off for a shower and then left it off for a month. That's progress. Yeah, because I forgot. (laughs) Um, I had found it and the battery had died. Quantified self. Yeah. Quantified self, I think is the term. Sure. But uh, I mean, I still walk home every day, but I don't think that that really gets the heart rate up enough to build any kind of cardio. No, I use the uh, Google pedometer in my phone and it's attached to like achievements and stuff like that. So yesterday after having run, it gave me a bunch of achievements. Oh, so I did a whole bunch of steps. Nice achievements like uh, you're going to be feeling this tomorrow (laughs) and we won't see you out here for a month. Right. I think uh, look into your spin class. You should be good. Yeah. Or what's what are those? The. Elliptical. Is that what they use for? I don't even know what the heck a spin class is. No, a spin class is like a stationary bike. Exercycle. Yeah. Right. So maybe look into an elliptical. Yeah, that costs money. Running outside's free. But you can't do it. Well, I have been able to do it before. Just somehow this time it flared up. So I'm out of commission for a couple of days while I wait for the inflation to right. settle down. All right. Fair enough. Inflammation. Yeah. Anyways, so do you have any ideas then for what we're going to be discussing? Uh, I think that there's a topic that we've fairly well neglected, and that's Unix security. We've touched on it a couple times with things like file permissions in the past, uh, but I thought maybe it would be time to actually delve in a little bit more into that. Yes, let's discuss Unix. So Unix, I mean, back in the early 1970s, was something that was developed by somebody called Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie over at Bell Labs. And they also created the C programming language to actually, you know, start programming it from the very beginning. They made a programming language, they made an operating system, and it's this tic-tac kind of thing as they progress these language and operating systems back and forth. Nowadays, people refer to Unix generally as all of the Unix variants that exist now, uh, such as... Oracle, Solaris, the bunch of Linux operating systems and things like uh, the the BSD, Berkeley system design uh, type operating systems, which are like FreeBSD and OpenBSD and NetBSD. So those are just generally all referred to as Unix nowadays. But Unix comes from a very old operating system uh, style. It's been around for a long time. Just like all of the web development now, it's had the opportunity to make all of the mistakes in the past and propagate them forward. 
So a lot of the problems with Unix are things like buffer overflow because it relies on the C programming language, you know, input validation that's really uh, difficult to do. So you got the integer overflows as well. Um, you know, just generally there are a bunch of interesting things that have come out over the years. Uh, like, for instance, the first few Unix operating systems didn't have the concept of user accounts and passwords. Well, they had user accounts, but they didn't have passwords because it was just a couple of guys at Bell Labs that trusted each other and they were working through things. And then as the marketplace, as they released it to the marketplace and people started actually leveraging this research that they were doing and using the Unix operating system, you know, of course, there were people logging into other people's Unix profiles and seeing the files that they had. So there was this kind of cat and mouse game initiated back then. So they had like the, okay, well, now we need passwords. So they had a password file, but then people would read the password file. So they had to encrypt the password file. But then they found ways of decrypting the password file uh, because typically it was just using simple DES encryption. And so they said, okay, well, we're going to change the way authentication happens and we're going to have the operating system, the kernel itself, be the one that's able to access the password file in a shadowed location, which is like um, like a copy of the password file, but without all of the actual encrypted passwords within it. And we'll replicate the password file so that other people can see, hey, what member of a group you are and have a whole bunch of different authentication there and keep the shadow password file and and Basically, only the logon program and root can access that password file. Clear so far? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So then people started attacking, trying to get access to root, trying to find ways to gain access to that shadowed file. So common variants now use something called pluggable authentication module. I mean, that's basically what's used in all Linux variants now. And this allows you to configure things within passwords because a password is just a password file right there's no rules associated with it the authentication module though is the one that'll prompt you for entering the same password twice to confirm that you did it correctly and then you can actually start configuring that password file so saying things like the password has to contain a certain layer of complexity so it has to have uppercase and lowercase letters it has to be of a certain length Right. You can actually have the password go through a dictionary file like we were talking about with a brute forcing episode where it compares to uh, whatever language uh, you're using the dictionary file for and saying, hey, this too closely resembles an English language word, for instance. Right? You've just swapped out the letter I for the number one. And therefore, you know, this this password is not complex enough. Please try again. Right. So there's interesting components like that. And again, we're talking about individual systems, right? So we had talked before that there's a possibility of having LDAP do authentication centrally, much like we'd had discussed with Active Directory, how Active Directory is the single repository for authentication. So the way LDAP works is the Unix, individual Unix servers tie back into an LDAP repository and so they receive their updates um, of account configuration settings from the LDAP server. So they're tied in through this pluggable authentication module to say, hey, whenever you need to do a lookup on this account, you're actually going to go against the LDAP server to check the details of what group this user is a part of and whatnot. 
but there's also the passwords have to get synchronized down to the individual Unix machines to begin with so that the person can log in. Actually, that might not be true. I have to look at that. Um, but the, um, the individual Unix machines have to actually have uh, an account placeholder for the same user by the same user ID or UID on the Unix system. Fair enough. Um, but for the most part, most places don't actually use uh, an LDAP repository, uh, at least in my experience. Most places have the individual Unix machines just as standalone islands. And then they'll centrally manage the accounts and replicate those out via just simple scripts. It'll copy the same settings across multiple Unix systems. That's great for things like group membership, right? And, and um, more granular type of controls in which you can have uh, an individual having rights. Uh, we had discussed a while ago that there's the possibility of using um, granularly defined access controls rather than the default one that comes with through uh, hardening. And hardening is a big part of Unix security because by default, everything's just a file. And, uh, and the read access to the files mean that you can read the content of the file. And there's three different settings on files. There's read, write, and execute. And everything is basically considered a file. So you have like a driver file, right? That the operating system can load up and say, okay, now this is a driver that I'm using. Uh, you can have a folder, which is also considered a file. You can have um, like a USB device that you attach is now considered a file to the operating system. So everything gets manipulated around as a file. And so those three level of permissions uh, get applied in three different ways. So there's the user itself that owns the file. There's the group that uh, is associated with the file. So every file has a, an owner and a group that it's a part of. And then the last one is everybody else. And those, as we said before, are marked through uh, a numeric value. Four being read, two being write, and one being execute for each of those settings. So that adds up to a maximum possible value of 777. But we did cover that in the past. So you want to make sure in Unix operating systems that services are reduced, that you only run basically what you need to have running. Um, a lot of the operating systems by default have come with a wide range of services opening. And in fact, the majority of the Unix operating system through my experience has been that pretty much everything's open and it's up to the person who's setting up the server to actually lock it down. This is true from uh, read permission setting that's set on, on uh, file items, uh, except for in very specific cases to certain folders like the ETC folder, which is typically where a bunch of privileged configuration information is stored, as well as the slash sbin folder, which is super user binaries. But pretty much everything else other than the log folder as well are read for everybody. Um, by default. So you need to go through and configure uh, what you want people to have read access to and what you don't want people to have read access to almost on a very granular folder by folder, file by file version. Individual user folders are by default uh, not readable to everybody. There's that too. Sounds like a very time consuming operation to set up. It is. It is definitely time consuming and you definitely want to 
set it up once and actually you know create a template for this or do it through scripting and then apply that same script on on multiple different servers of course if somebody doesn't have an account on that server they can't log in but basically you want to make the accounts unprivileged and then have people have the opportunity to change their privilege level just like we talk about in windows people would log in with a regular user id and then when they need to elevate their privilege they can run as and they get that nice fancy uh uac gui where they type in you know the administrator credentials and then they're running that particular uh application under the context of an administrator uac being the user account control yes thank you in unix uh, you're much the same thing you should run everything under the context of a regular user uh, and then elevate your privilege to the root user as necessary. Uh, so that is typically done through the SU command or super user command. So are you saying that by default, Unix has like almost all of its file settings as 777? Uh, no. So typically most Unix file systems that I've seen have uh, files created under read, write, and execute for the owner of the file and then group that's associated with that file and then everybody else read. Would it not make a lot more sense to have it set as everything is completely accessible to the super user account and then after that they have to specifically turn on the access for users? So everything is always accessible to the super user account. Everything is accessible to root, right? No matter what the file setting is, uh, the file setting is around the user the owner of that file. So assuming that you don't run everything as root, when you actually create a, a new file, like say you want to create a, a document, right? So you create the document file and it will have full privilege. So the first seven will be for you as the creator of that file. So it'll have read, write, and execute. And then, you know, maybe read and execute for the group or read, write, execute for the group and then read access to pretty much everyone else. Right. And then you actually have to go and change the permission uh, if you want to uh, by using chmod command, which is the change the mode of the file. You can change ownership of the file through chown. And yeah, so it's these are the settings that you can do. Um, and it does inherit the permissions on stuff, I believe, through you know, the base folder. So if you say, yeah, this folder's contents are going to be read, write, execute to myself, but nobody else is going to have access to it. So it's going to be 700, 700 permission on the folder. Then the things created within that folder also have that permission, I believe. Unless specified otherwise. Absolutely. But that just really sounds to me like, I don't know. I mean, obviously I don't have enough background of why they decided to make it like this but it just sounds as though you're starting with a really insecure setup and then yep. letting people like the likelihood of the server admin missing a document or something that they should have changed the permissions on just seems really out there yes and and it certainly is a big task for people to do but like I said, like this started off in a very open environment where people were contributing and developing it together, right? And security was an afterthought. And when security is an afterthought, you know, these are the types of problems that you have. 
It's a multi-user operating system. So people can be logging in at the same time and running stuff at the same time. But any service that's been built on top of it has been functionality first and then security afterwards. So the things we were talking about uh, with how um, how Kevin Mitnick was able to gain foothold into uh, the Sun Labs systems by using the finger buffer overflow, right? It's a finger. Uh, the finger service is just something to say who's logged into a machine at the time, but it had a problem with it where it was able to gain access to the root level of the operating system. Right. Um, and that's actually another very interesting thing that was an afterthought that was put into the Unix operating systems, which is networking services, right? So having uh, something listening on the server, anybody can create one of these. It's just a socket that gets created on the actual system. And as long as that socket's not occupied by somebody else, you can go ahead and create one through programming to set that up. Right, or leveraging something that's already a, a program that allows you to script that to happen. Except for there's a set of reserved ports of port number 1 through 1024. And those ports, they've discovered that we don't want somebody creating a race condition uh, for something that's vital to the operating system. So we'll reserve those so that only root can open up those ports. So that means your base operating system functionality services have to be started up through the, the most powerful account in the system, the root account, right? The problem is if somebody compromises the service, if there's a bug in the service, now you have root privileges to that operating system over a network, which is not really a desired course of action. So there's a few things that people have done over the course of time to actually do this smartly. So people like uh, the Apache web server say, okay, we're going to start up using the root account, but then we're going to operate under a different account. So the only thing that's running under the privilege of root is actually the reservation of port 80, right? Or whatever port you choose. But the reservation of that network port on that machine is started off under root. And then the context of the application is just under a separate ID for that application. So that's a pretty fancy way of getting around that. Um, another service that's common to remotely access these Unix machines is the SSH service, so the secure shell service. And again, there's a, a configuration file and a service that gets run, and you can specify the, the level of security in which you want the service to be able to communicate, right? And you can have uh, the menu type suite that we were discussing before with SSL, where you say, hey, I can support this protocol or this algorithm and this algorithm and this algorithm as far as cryptographic algorithms. And then say, if you can't communicate over these secure ones, and I'm just not going to talk at all. And SSH also allows for another very interesting thing. Other than just prompting someone to type in their username and password, people can actually save a key on their system that represents a username and password that they can use that key to authenticate against the operating system. Now, if you have an enterprise levels infrastructure where you have like hundreds of Unix systems and you've synchronized the actual keys that are allowed to be used to log into these systems across all of them, right? Now you have a, a single key to gain access to all of these different systems and you can just authenticate using 
your SSH key as your credential. What is the benefit of that over just using your credentials? So one, now you can actually script it in a more secure way where you don't have to actually type in your password and username into everything. You just have it use this key file. You can start chaining systems together if they all use the same credential where the different systems that you log into have a copy of the key that you need to access the next system. So if you have like a firewalled setup where you have to go from A to B to get to C, right? You can have this hopping uh, go along and chain that through. So isn't a key just an elaborate password? It is. Like for super simplification, um, you've got your password, which is password. You enter that into the computer. The computer says, yes, this person is authenticated using password. And then the next time they try to communicate to the other computer, they say, okay, well, this is password too. And the computer says, yep, password too. That checks out. That's the key that I've got. Yes, essentially it is exactly the same as a password and you need to protect it as a password. So does it just, is it just longer? It is a cryptographic algorithm so it's encrypted so even if somebody intercepts it there's a part of a challenge response that goes along with that so that it's not just um that's basically essentially the same as a password um yes it can be longer because it's a mathematical representation basically of a password Um, but yeah essentially you have to protect it just the same way so how do you protect your password if you have it lying around on your disk on your hard drive right so how do you protect it from somebody else being able to gain access to it? Usually so I hide it on a post-it note on my monitor. There you go. That works with passwords, but uh, not so much with keys, right? So Keys with- I hide in a fake rock under my desk. Exactly. So people are just like, oh, this is just a rock. They don't know it's hollowed out and it's got a key inside it. Perfect. Because why else would there be a rock on your desk? Um, no, but so the, the logical keys that you'd be using... You want to secure that. So Wait that a you- second. That's an amazing product. You know, instead of the fake rock thing that they sell for gardens for people, for their house key. Right. That's an actual product, by, by the way. Um, yes. A fake stapler. You have a huh. fake stapler with a false bottom, and you just have right. a desk key inside that. Yes. There you go. You can take that one to the bank, buddy. Awesome. I will do. There's your, there's your kid's college fund right there. Perfect. Thank you. What else was this? Um, yeah. So how, how do you protect that key? Well, there's a few different ways. <laughs> Stapler. Duh. Weren't you listening like one second ago? People use a uh, Java key store oftentimes uh, where it's an encrypted file to uh, to hide the key within. Um, and then there's also people have developed a secure product called SSH Agent. An SSH agent is something that allows you to dynamically gain access to it if you're under the context of the right user account. There was recently an interesting article on a vulnerability with an SSH agent, which says that if you actually dump the memory of the system, then you can gain access to the key that SSH agent is manipulating on behalf of the user. I mean, it's nothing new. You've always been able to manipulate and find stuff in memory, but typically stuff doesn't stay in memory for very long. However, the purpose of SSH agent is to automatically retrieve somebody's uh, SSH key to present to the SSH server to log the person in. 
So this one actually has to stay in the context of that user's uh, memory space. Now, what that would allow you to do is that would allow you to log into all of these systems. If you have it configured like most enterprises do, where your SSH key is propagated onto all these different systems, and you can just log in through using this SSH key. There are protective mechanisms that you can use. You can have SSH agent have a timeout so that it doesn't keep it in memory for long. So again, it's a configuration that you'd, uh, you'd configure on a user-by-user -user basis. Wouldn't that be just system-wide? Um, there may be a system-wide setting. I'm not sure from the article that I was reading on this. The commenter had mentioned that it's a setting left up to a user that they can configure. Mm. Which goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning about Unix being designed so that people actually have to know what they're doing, right? And configure the system to be secure for their use. It's very powerful. It's very efficient in the stuff that it does because it doesn't have a lot of these extra checks and balances built in, perhaps. But uh, it, it's also dangerous in its power. Dangerous in leaving the power in the hands of the wrong people, like users as opposed to administrators. Exactly. So what else is there to say generally about Unix? Any, anything else that I can cover on the topic of Unix security? Do you have any questions? Um, no, I think that pretty much sums up all of Unix ever. Now we never have to talk about it again. No, um, I, I don't know. As a general overview, that feels... The objective was to go into a little bit more depth into the Unix operating system to help flesh out people's knowledge of that. Uh, so it's just, yeah, a powerful operating system that a lot of the power is in the hands of the administrator. The administrators need to be really on top of this stuff. Oh, and uh, another very important part of the Unix operating system is the scheduling of things to run to clean up files, to, to validate permissions on folders and whatnot, um, to basically do anything. So there's... Uh, that Backing up databases. Exactly. There's a scheduler on most Unix operating systems called cron. And that's the language for the scheduler. And you need to set up basically your scripts to run on an hourly, daily, uh, weekly basis or at any specific time through this scheduler. Yeah, I only used it to back up databases. I can't quite get the language down. I'm trying to, trying to do some geo-positional IP address lookups based on it. And uh, yeah, I can't quite get the hang of it. At one point, I had set it up so that because I was running a a store, and so we did nightly backups of our um, inventory, and basically all of the inventory was web based, so that we could have it sell online, sell, and then uh, list inventory via eBay, and also list inventory on our web shop. That was a thing I wrote. Cool. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, no, I, I hope that's enough of an understanding. Um, it's one of those things that it's better to gain experience to be able to learn it. Uh, definitely there's downloading a free version of the operating system over BitTorrent. You know, Linux distributions are typically done that way or, or through uh, websites to just try it out. Really, nowadays, you can um, boot it off of a USB key and just play with it. You know, learn the basic commands to it. Uh, it is very powerful. It's very interesting. And 
even if you're like a Windows administrator, you really need to understand the Unix side to be able to speak to these people because it behaves quite differently. Um, even Macintoshes that you buy, Apple, Apple Macs, right? Their operating system is based on FreeBSD. So it's it's been changed a lot, but at its core, you can still get down to the command, the terminal layer and type in Unix commands to it. And it still treats everything like a file and it still has those same type of permissions. So hmm. it's you know something worthwhile knowing. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. The other half is, I don't know. Doing? Oh, that. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope that your uh, recovery is quick and painless. Thank you. So do I. And I guess I'll talk to you in another week. Absolutely. Or perhaps later on. Who knows? Yeah. All right, you have yourself a great one. Thanks, man. You too. Thanks.